is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, a new military covenant enshrined in law with a promise of more support for the forces. In the future, hopefully, things will be set in stone for all, all serving personnel. Considering what we do for this country, the help we get afterwards is quite disgusting. But there's a warning of even more cuts to come. If the army got cut down to, let's say, 80,000, that is a very small number indeed. BFBS. Headlines. The Royal British Legion claims the armed forces community is facing a perfect storm of health and welfare needs in the years ahead. The charity says the legacy of Afghanistan and Iraq, plus defence cuts and the strains on the public finances, will be to blame. In eastern Afghanistan, officials say 35 construction workers have been killed in an attack by insurgents. They were at a roadside camp when they launched the attack before dawn. A member of the House of Lords has used the rules of Parliament to reveal details of an injunction relating to the private life of the former head of the Royal Bank of Scotland. Lord Stoneham says the public has a right to know if Sir Fred Goodwin had a relationship with a senior colleague. The Justice Secretary, Ken Clarks, dismissed the continued calls for him to resign after he appeared to say some rapes were less serious than others. He says in future he'll choose his words more carefully. And the government has strongly hinted that it won't go ahead with controversial plans to shut 10 of the country's 19 Coast Guard stations. It's thought some stations will still close. A list will be announced before MPs break up for the summer recess. This week's announcement on the military covenant is an historic breakthrough, according to veterans groups. For the first time, the state's promise to look after those who don uniform to protect it will be written into law. But only the core principle will go on the statute book, that no one should be disadvantaged in their day-to-day lives by their military service. Though there were announcements of extra help on health care and education, cuts in council tax and a veteran's discount card, there won't be a list of legally enforceable promises. But after last-minute negotiations, the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, told MPs the government was able to keep a pledge made a year ago. Then men and women of the three services, regulars and reservists, whether they are serving today or have done so in the past, their families and those who have lost a loved one in service, all deserve our support and respect. That obligation is encapsulated in the Armed Forces Covenant. It's certainly true that concessions were only offered after a Conservative backbencher tried to have the text of the Covenant written into the Armed Forces Bill. Well, the Royal British Legion played a key role in negotiations, and earlier I spoke to the organisation's Director-General, Chris Simpkins. We've steered a, a bit of a U-turn, really, uh, and uh, certainly the Ministry of Defence, I think, has been struggling with the, the concept and then when we saw the Armed Forces Bill and noticed that uh, this provision wasn't included in the bill, obviously we swung into action with our campaigning and lobbying, both of parliamentarians and obviously uh, seeking the support of the media and, and the public at large. And, and we've had enormous support uh, on this campaign, huge amount of support. And that resulted, I think, um, was very influential in, in encouraging the Prime Minister to re-engage personally with this as a result of which uh, I was invited to number 10 for a discussion with the Prime Minister and his advisers. And, and it would be wrong to say we struck a deal then, but we, uh, we reached an agreement anyway as to what, what the government would do. And uh, the Prime Minister demonstrated that he was totally committed to, to doing what he said he would do uh, last June. 
And what's actually different in what's been agreed this week compared to what was originally in the Armed Forces Bill? Well, quite simply, in the bill originally, all there was was a, if you like, a reference to the uh, to the covenant. No uh, statement as to what that covenant might be, uh, and a requirement placed on the Secretary of State to produce an annual report. So, if you like, this was the the government and the MOD reporting on itself, albeit that a number of other government departments would be involved as well. And we were concerned about that because there was really uh, little opportunity for proper external scrutiny uh, of this, and the Secretary of State got very sweeping powers to include or exclude whatever he liked from that report. We're clearly awaiting the the government amendments which they're going to put forward to that bill. Um, I would expect to see those perhaps in about two weeks' time, and we will very carefully scrutinise those those amendments at that time to make sure that it it meets with, with our expectations. And if not, uh, I shall be seeking to, to speak with the Prime Minister again. So the principles will be put into law, you expect, but ministers are very clear that they don't want to be a, end up in court. They can't be challenged legally on them. So does it actually achieve anything? I believe it does. I mean, this, this is the first time ever that um, the military covenant, the armed forces covenant is now being called, uh, will appear on, on the statute book. It, it is, a, I believe, an historic moment because it sets out very clearly uh, the, the statement that, at the very least, nobody should be uh, harmed or disadvantaged, if you like, right, is a better way of putting it, disadvantaged as a result of their military service. So will the new covenant work in practice? Lee Wickham was injured on patrol in Iraq and later medically discharged. His injury left him barely able to walk, let alone work, and he could yet lose his leg. There's a case of... Cheers for your time, here you go, your red book will be in the post, you know, in the next few days, and that was it. As far as disability living allowance goes, as far as getting grants to help me goes, even small things like the housing benefit side of it, I, you know, I didn't know how to go about getting it, to go about what to do with it, so I ended up in a bedsit, paying for it all myself. They're skirting around the edges and they're not giving us any defining answers whatsoever. In the future, hopefully, one will believe that it will change and things will be set in stone for all, all serving personnel. Even if they're not injured and they, they come out of the army, there's nowhere near enough help from the government. Um, considering what we do for this country, uh, the help we get afterwards, I think, is, is quite disgusting. Chris Simpkins, what difference would the new military covenant make for someone like Lee? Well, it's not just the, the new uh, covenant. It's actually what is available now, because uh, Lee was describing there the, uh, the difficulties he had in understanding and accessing the various benefits that are available to him. Uh, the Legion uh, uh, initiated a service about two years ago now that has released uh, to provide um, support for those people and assistance in accessing the, the benefits that they're entitled to. And that was, as, as, uh, I think, in the last 12 months, uh, we've, we've accessed... Uh, about £6 million in benefits for people and enable them to write off £15 million of debt. Now, those are the sorts of services that that need to be extended in the future, and we need to make sure that as people leave the services, they know precisely where they can go for help. And certainly the Royal British Legion uh, and indeed other charities are there for them. It's not as simple as providing a a, a once-and-for-all helpline, if you like, my experience is that people want to be able to access someone and see them eyeball to eyeball, if you like. The Royal British Legion has got a nationwide coverage. We can be on anybody's doorstep in response to a call for help within an hour, dealing with them personally through casework support. And indeed, we work closely with uh, SAFA to provide those same sorts of resources. So there's a huge amount of, of, of support out there for uh, people leaving the services. What we need to 
straightforward uh, for them to access those services. So information is clearly a problem. As far as the money is concerned, if you do flag up problems in the future on resources, are you convinced ministers will be prepared to spend the money necessary to put things right? I don't really think I can answer that. I mean, ministers are clearly uh, very much challenged uh, and concerned with with public sector expenditure at the moment. What I can say for for certain is that the uh, support which the public has for the armed forces, I don't think in my lifetime has ever been higher. And that's manifesting itself, among other things, in uh, uh, our success in in fundraising terms. Um, Just that my fear for the future, for the charities, is that as the media spotlight fades, as we pull out of Afghanistan, and assuming there's not something that uh, replaces it, but as as the spotlight on operational activity fades, will the public remember that we've still got a legacy of, uh, of need there to deal with? And that's certainly a concern for the Royal British Legion. Uh, and, of course, the people are being injured now um, and are leaving the services now, perhaps uh, very fit, but may well experience problems later. They're going to need support potentially for the next 50, 60, 70, maybe even 80 years as we're all living much longer. And, of course, that in turn leads to people becoming ill and frail in, in later life. Chris Semkins from the Royal British Legion, or BFBS's defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me in the studio. Hi, Christopher. Um, Does this make any practical difference, having an armed forces covenant? It should do, but it's going to be very difficult to to, to find where it makes that difference. I mean, for example, there is um, already, uh, the way we're talking there, there's already a a sort of one missing part of it. It is about families as well. And the armed forces have, ter- I think, terrible difficulties with just normal living. If anybody goes to family quarters, I know they're all being improved. People are trying to improve them. But some people live in absolute terrible conditions. And these are the families of soldiers who are going uh, on, on operational duty. The other part of it is that you've got a, a, a minister at the moment who is supposed to be looking after veterans. He's got no clout at all. He's a junior bag carrier. And so you've got to have somebody who is bigger than this. You've got to have somebody, um, I don't mean like a retired uh, CDS, you've got to have somebody who's got the political clout. But the most important thing about it all is what uh, Chris Simpkins was talking about. When we come out of Afghanistan, every single sort of prediction comes to this point. The British public will lose interest and they will say, right, we now actually want a peace dividend and gradually you can lose sight of the people that have actually done a lot of work. We've only got to look at the Second World War, the Korean War, what's happening in Northern Ireland. If mm. those people, it's not just the... Af- we must lose sight, it's not just the Afghanistan or I- I- Iraq operations that we're talking about. I suppose it's the flexibility of the government that could be of concern because it can be reviewed each year and what is actually delivered can be reviewed each year. Yeah, and you've got... Uh, you, you can deliver it, You uh, projects sort of fall behind behind schemes as well. But you've got another side of this. What happens when you get uh, active groups who say, listen, this is not working? We're going to forget the British courts. We're going to, let's say, the European court. We're going to the Court of Human Rights and start doing that, yeah. then that's the thing that's been uh, bothering the MOD right from the beginning uh, of this story. And on that point, the principle that no, no one should be disadvantaged because of the job they're doing, uh, would that stand up in the European Court of Law if a legal argument were to be brought on that sense? We don't know, because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a new world there. But I think it, it, it seems to me the most significant part of all this is how miserably troops, sailors, airmen, airwomen have been treated by the MOD 
Don't talk about the government. It's not government's problem. It's been the MOD, and the MOD traditionally has treated people extraordinarily badly, almost with arrogance. Um, and that is something which is reflected in the fact that they've been pushed and pushed and pushed. And the fact that Chris Simpkins and his lot, the British Legion and the others, were able to go to David Cameron and say, you're going to come out of this very bad. You're going to look very bad on this, Prime Minister. And don't forget, when you come out in, in 2015, people are going to be saying, now what happens? And you've got to make up your mind. That's why this thing is going to be in the Armed Forces Bill. I don't think it's going to have much guts, but this is just the beginning. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Well, the news this week that the forces could be facing another painful round of spending cuts was overshadowed by the announcement on the Armed Forces Covenant. It's reported a three-month review of personnel and equipment could see further significant changes in the next financial year. And the Defence Secretary has said tough decisions will have to be made on a regular basis. This time, it's thought the Army is in the spotlight, with one report claiming up to 20,000 posts could be cut. Major General Patrick Cordingley, who commanded the Desert Rats in the first Gulf War, is worried. If the army got cut down to, let's say, 80,000, that is a very small number indeed. Are our armed forces capable of taking part in NATO operations in any situation? We've got ourselves into a situation where we can act in Afghanistan effectively, but could we act if we had to go into, let's say, the Libyan Desert? Well, to discuss the prospect of further cuts, I'm joined by the BBC's defence correspondent, Jonathan Beale. Hello, Jonathan. Hi there. Operations in Afghanistan saved the army, arguably, from bigger cuts in the defence review. Uh, it seems that that deadline for withdrawal of combat troops could now put them at greater risk. Do you think so? I think certainly in the future. I mean, if you remember the speculation before the uh, SDSR that came out in November was that uh, there would be cuts of 20,000 personnel in the army. Um, it wasn't as bad as that. It was 7,000 in the end uh, for the army. Uh, but uh, you look at what they're suggesting in the SDSR. If you remember, they're saying one enduring operation of 6,500 uh, forces. Well, that's smaller than the, the current commitment uh, in Afghanistan of around 10,000 troops. Uh, one complex intervention, non-enduring, 2,000 personnel. And then a simple intervention of about a thousand personnel, so three operations at the same time, one of them long lasting, two of them quick. Um, clearly, they are envisaging a smaller army. And if army numbers did come down to around 80,000, what kind of things would we no longer be able to do? Well, I, I think, you know, look at it as to what we're doing now. We wouldn't be able to commit as many troops uh, as we are currently committing in Afghanistan, uh, and you can see that in the document itself, the SDSR, 6,500 troops for an enduring long operation rather than 10,000. So I think that, you know, it will have an impact. The other thing you, I think you'd look at is, is also, I mean, it wasn't that long ago we saw a leaked letter from uh, uh, about special forces recruitment, the difficulties that they're having. You've got smaller pool of people to choose from, it will have a knock-on effect right through the service. Uh, Christopher, a former head of the armed forces, Lord Stirrup, has said the SDSR will diminish Britain's influence in the world, yet the Defence Secretary is saying we will remain in the Premier League. Uh, what do you see as the future role of the army? Well, I don't think it's a question of diminishing the, uh, Britain's sort of influence in the world. I mean, that goes in a different direction now. You've only got to see uh, the Foreign Secretary, uh, Mr Haig, the other day, said he's, uh, there's a different emphasis in the embassies in future because we want to look at different ways of emphasising British foreign policy. 
policy. Now, you can't look at any of this without reading the, the strategic plan with the SDSR. You've got to put that all together at the, at the moment. You know, and Jonathan, you know, right, you know, when he's talking about sort of, let's say, you can't perhaps do an operation that means for the moment you've got, say, 9,000, 10,000 people in Afghanistan. Don't forget, if you've got 9,000 people in Afghanistan, it probably takes something like 25,000, 26,000 people because you've got people there, you've got people who've just come back, you've got people in training, people ready to go. You've also got a great logistical train. So we don't see it or shouldn't see it in terms of numbers in just could we go to boots on ground in Libya, could we go to Afghanistan again? Do you buy the speculation that's been about that perhaps, uh, despite this leaked um, report about the difficulty in recruiting special forces, that they could be bolstered, intelligence could be bolstered, and that we could become a power in that sense? Yeah, you could do. I mean, when when you hear about special forces, their, their success story is always said to be extraordinarily well. Listen, the Germans this week going through exactly what we went with SDSR. Can we learn from the Germans? Uh, yeah, we can in learning one effort, uh, one, one part of it. They're thinking, of, uh, thinking at the idea at the moment is that you have groups of uh, forces, maybe let's say 5,000 brigade size, for example, that are only short term. They're only there for short term. And you bring them in, you train them, you use them for five years and out they go. It's cheaper than actually having a standing force. Now, that's very much the bones of it. Uh, let's see if anybody picks that up here because it's, it's an element that's missing. And don't forget, uh, at the moment, uh, Liam Fox is actually saying to his people, how do I do this? Can I do this? What can I do? But you have to go back to what Britain wants to be in 2020. And that was the original idea of SDSR. Didn't work that way. We're supposed to know what we're doing in, say, 15 years' time, but we don't know that. Jonathan Beale, are we any closer to knowing who and what we want to be on the global stage in, in 15, 20 years' time, do you think? Um, I don't th- think so. I mean, you know, th- there's been plenty of cris- criticism of the SDSR that actually it was a cuts exercise and it didn't have a, a big strategic vision. Um, uh, that said, uh, you know, we do know at the moment that this government wants to carry on having an influence doing counter-piracy operations in the Indian Ocean, um, it wants to, you know, protect the Falklands. It wants to have a nuclear deterrent. Um, I think, you know, there are difficult decisions ahead that the government's got to make. Now, as I understand, they haven't actually... I mean, you know, some people are saying that the SDSR is being reopened. I don't think it is. But I think, that as, as, as we're hearing from a speech, in fact, from Liam Fox today at, Ch- at Chatham House, that he is having to do an exercise where he is having to try and work out whether uh, his planning assumptions meet uh, the MOD's spending settlement. The big problem at the moment, for, 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 for the, certainly for the, for the armed forces and the service chiefs, is that they want some kind of indication from the government that there will be an uplift in funding uh, within you know, a few years' time. They haven't mm. got that guarantee at the moment. So, therefore, that is why everybody is talking about cuts. And when you talk about cuts, the next question is, well, what are you not prepared to do? Yeah, and amid all of this, uh, to an outsider looking on, it may seem strange that this week we hear, uh, despite all the cuts, talk of billions of pounds being spent on the possible replacement of Trident, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, this this was, if you remember, uh, a few months ago, uh, there was news that leaked out of number 10. I think uh, it seemed pretty strategic at the time, but saying there would be no main gate, that's the main decision to go ahead with building the replacement for the Trident nuclear submarines. Now, it's always been a Tory party uh, commitment to replace the Trident fleet. Uh, As we know, in coalition, they've had to 
uh, tailor their, their views to some extent to accommodate the Liberal Democrats who've been opposed uh, to replacing Trident. They want a cheaper alternative. Um, now, yes, David Cameron has delayed the main gate decision, but to be honest, what we've got now is uh, Liam Fox, what's called the initial gate decision, saying that he's going to spend £3 billion on research and development, ordering the steel for these submarines, um, and then um, uh, that's a £3 billion of a total of about more than £20 billion. So it's a significant proportion. And to be honest, I think most people, certainly Tory MPs in Westminster, believe that uh, this is the green light that they are going to get this nuclear deterrent because it's been a Tory party manifesto and they are, if you like, the senior partner in this coalition. All right, Jonathan Beale, the BBC's defence correspondent, thank you very much for your time today. Sit Rep with Kate Jubal. Still to come this week, what will the Queen's historic trip to Ireland mean for relations with Britain? I don't think she should have come over. There's too much soreness in. I think it's great. We'll give her a super welcome. She's very welcome. On last week's SITREP, we talked about whether Osama bin Laden's death could lead to a quicker British drawdown in Afghanistan. This week, the Prime Minister confirmed around 400 British troops will leave in the next nine months. But, he says, it makes no difference to the overall withdrawal timetable. The troops that went in to guard the airport at uh, Kandahar and also some people involved in the air bridge and some people involved in the rapid reaction force, there will be around 400, perhaps slightly more, uh, troops coming out of Afghanistan in the coming year, up to February 2012. But the enduring force level uh, remains at 9,500. We've also heard this week Britain's mission in Iraq will finally come to an end in the next few days when the Navy concludes its training of Iraqi sailors. Meanwhile, it's thought the cost of Britain's operation in Libya has now passed £100 million. Ministers admit there's division among NATO members over what to do next as the Chief of the Defence Staff warns Colonel Gaddafi will cling to power unless we up the ante. Christopher Lee is still with me. Uh, Christopher, only a few weeks ago, David Richards was saying we had no mandate to target Colonel Gaddafi. His latest rhetoric is much tougher. Why this sort of change in mood? And then we had Osama bin Laden. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's it's almost there. What we've actually got to now is the idea of so-called advanced containment, and that is this. You, You try and contain with what's going on, but you increase your targeting and you start to increase your targeting uh, so that the people at the very top with him look around and say, listen, we're not going to survive this lot. Now, we think, we think there are reports, for example, that his family have already skedaddled. His wife and daughter, is that right? Wife and daughter, yeah. his, his, his only daughter, has, they, they, they've actually gone. There was a, an idea that was being floated around last night in Whitehall that there are a lot of people are saying, not we're going to get rid of him. No, that won't that won't happen. But he might decide. That's been accepted that he won't be got rid of, has it? In that's Whitehall? right. At the moment, that's right. That's what they're saying. You see, the other side of it is this: he might actually say, um, "Well, I'm uh, I'm going to run just one part of the country." Now that won't work either. The point is, what will work? Is it, what, what, what do you see as the, the, the? I mean, we've been told the long haul. What, what do you see as the solution to this situation? Well. Leave me out of it. I'll bring in the CDS. And most importantly, bring in the Americans. Um, the CDS, the chiefs of staff, have been told one thing. And that, do you remember, we had all this stuff about the Americans not really getting involved in this now. They're just sort of pulling back out of it. It's not true. The Americans are very much in there. And if there was started to be an intensive predator 
bombardment in something like the next four or five days. Is it, this sounds like a prediction, Chris. Uh, yeah, well, it's not mine. It's people I talk to. Uh, that wouldn't be surprising, and it wouldn't be surprising for one particular reason. Uh, President Obama is here in London next Wednesday. He's and giving, that's what will be talked off the record. He is going think? to well, Mind he's going to give a big thing on on Europe. And it's very important, this transatlantic relationship. He's going to be doing that on Europe. It would be good, wouldn't it, to say, we got him, or as the son used to say, gotcha. It's 100 years since a British monarch uh, was last in Ireland when King George V was there in 1911. Ireland was still a part of the UK. And in Dublin, the prospect of the Queen's visit still divides opinion. Irish people are hospitable and the traditions of hospitality require if you invite someone into your house you treat them properly. She's a head of state of our um, nearest neighbour so why not? Absolutely. I don't think she should have come over. There's too much soreness in. I mean she still has six counties that she won't get back to us. I think it's an awful disgrace. Um, I think everything that's going up north is still going on. I think it's great. We'll give her a super welcome. She's very welcome. Before the Queen landed in Ireland, there were security alerts in Dublin and London blamed on dissident Republicans, and there have been protests against her visit. At a state banquet in Dublin, the Queen spoke of the heartache, turbulence and loss in Britain's relationship with Ireland. To all those who have suffered as a consequence of our troubled past, I extend my sincere thoughts and deep sympathy. With the benefit of historical hindsight... We can all see things which we would wish had been done differently, or not at all. Well, Kevin Myers writes for the Irish Independent, and he's on the line now. Kevin Myers, thanks for your time today. Those opposed to the visit wanted an apology. Uh, she came pretty close. What do you make of the Queen's comments? Well, first of all, the, those opposed to the visit are really such a tiny minority. The Vox Pop at the beginning of this item just doesn't represent the reality at all. I mean, 90% of people are very much in favour of, of, of the trip and uh, of the visit, and, and the, the rest are marginally equivalent. The, those who are actually opposed to, don't constitute any, any number at all. So halfway through the, the visit... Just to go back to the speech, the question, um, it was very caref- uh, carefully crafted, and it, uh, as you would expect, because she works a great deal on her, her speeches, and she has to create in minds um, the expectation that, that their demands have been satisfied. And she did that. She didn't apologize. Uh, it's what the events of, of 1921, which is very much in people's minds at the moment, um, shortly before Ireland achieved its independence, um, were complex. And many dreadful things were done by both sides. And when she talked about things that were, not, that were better not done, that, you know, can apply to both sides. So she left the interpretation of events up to others. But she did say what most intelligent people would say, that some things were better undone, and that is certainly the truth. You said that those that were against her visit were a very small number. That said, what is the mood in Ireland? I have never met anything, anything accounted anything like it. Um, the, the, the cleverness of this trip is that very few words have been spoken at the major events she's gone to. Um, she, uh, her conversations have been private, and she and the president uh, attended the wreath laying at the Garden of Remembrance, which is for IRA men who died fighting the British um, in between 1916 and 1921. Now, no um, British 
head of state has been there for obvious reasons. No British head of state has been here since 1921. But it was an extraordinarily solemn occasion, made more, all the more impressive by the fact that the British military tradition lives on in the Irish army. And so it, it could have been almost a British military band there. The music was identical to that which you'd hear in Horse Guards Parade. And so there were cultural similarities. On the other hand, uh, they were celebrating or commemorating, a better word, um, a struggle put up by men who were fighting the British, who belonged to a tradition which in Ireland is called the Fianna, which is an irregular band of warriors opposing um, a, a foreign rule. And, uh, and so the Queen was doing something that people in Ireland hadn't expected her to do, which was honoring their dead. And it, it was a very impressive ceremony, and everyone was in no doubt, just about everyone was in no doubt about the sincerity uh, of her presence there. Uh, security uh, been very, very tight, and there has been a rise in distant Republican activity since the announcement of the visit. How worried have Irish officials been? They have been worried. There's no question about that. The security is extraordinary. The public hasn't been allowed anywhere near the Queen. Only select uh, audiences uh, have been allowed near her. And, uh, for example, at uh, the um, Island Bridge which, um, Park, uh, which is for the Irish who were killed serving the Crown, a large war memorial outside Dublin, uh, every single person who attended that, those 600 people, uh, were body searched and, um, and right. through a very sec uh, tight security check. The Queen's um, close-up protection team, uh, which I saw yesterday, um, are very vigilant. Mm. They're very serious. Um, they are looking around for potential attack. All right. Now, I, I have seen the Queen in London. And, Kevin, there we must leave it. Thank okay. you very much for your time today. Kevin Myers from the Irish Independent. Um, Christopher, um, President Obama will be uh, visiting Ireland, also here in the UK next week. Um, just tell us a bit more about that visit. OK, he's going talking at, the, at Westminster in, uh, at the Houses of Parliament next week on Wednesday. He's talking about Europe. He's been talking about the Middle East this week. This combines together Europe. People want to hear what he says because they don't want America standing off. Most important speech, second most important speech he's ever made is going to happen in Westminster next Wednesday. All right, Christopher, thanks for your time. That was SITREP. Thank you very much for listening and do join us again the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.